Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer. And this is The Man Trashna Murders, Part 1. This episode looks at one of the most vicious and unnerving murders in 19th century Ireland. Taking place in 1882, it made headlines around the world, and since then these events have been shrouded in mystery and injustice. This first podcast in this mini-series looks at the murders themselves, while following episodes will look at the trial and what followed. August 17th, 1882 was a day like any other in Mam Trasna, a quiet community living on the Mayo-Galway border. Situated on the shores of Loch Mask in the shade of the Partree Mountains, its 100 or so residents were living in one of the most remote parts of Ireland. Pinned between the inhospitable mountains to the west and the expansive waters of Loch Mask to the east, there was rarely if any passing traffic through the region. Isolated and living in small farms with poor soil, life was not easy in this forgotten corner of the world. Indeed, such was the remoteness of Mam Trasna that the 21 houses there in the 1880s must have often seemed like a world unto themselves. The outside world was certainly a faraway place. The nearest police station was a temporary police hut in Finney, around eight miles away, while the nearest doctor was over ten miles away, in a world where most people still walked. Both were over two hours from Mam Trasna. Beyond these outposts, the nearest city, Galway, was 40 miles to the southeast in a journey that involved crossing mountainous terrain and two lakes. A journey to Dublin was another 120 miles further east still. The isolation of life in Mam Trasna, however, would all change on the night of the 17th to the 18th of August, 1882. Now, the people of Mam Trasna lived in extreme poverty. Their houses were little more than huts. The writer, John Millington Singh, travelled the west of Ireland some years after these events took place and described a house that was typical of the region. There was no chimney and the smoke rose against the wall to a hole in the roof at the top of the gable. At the other end of the room there was a cow with two calves and a few sickly hens. The air was so filled with turf smoke that we went out again in a moment. This description was almost identical to where the terrible events that changed life in Mantrasna forever took place. The house, the home of John Joyce and his family, was a small two-roomed building 
The door opened into what was known as the kitchen, a multi-purpose room, measuring 20 feet by 10 feet. At one end was a fireplace, but similar to Singh's description, there was no chimney, but simply a hole in the thatched roof to allow the smoke escape. At the other end was an area where animals were kept, inside, perhaps to guard against thieves at night. Off this kitchen was a smaller room, used for sleeping, measuring six feet by four feet. In this small space, John Joyce lived with his wife, Breege, his three children from a previous marriage, and his mother, who was in her eighties. Another son, Martin, was away working on a farm a few miles away, but luckily did not return home on the night of August the 17th. As darkness fell over Mam Trasna on that fateful Thursday evening, the peace and tranquillity that followed in its wake was deceptive. While the isolation and lack of passing traffic guaranteed a golden silence, sinister plans were afoot that made Mam Trasna known across the world, giving it a notoriety that no community would ever want. As the sun rose just after six o'clock on Friday the 18th of August 1882, the community of Mam Trasna rose and began to go about their daily business. John Collins, who lived close to the Joyce house, walked up the road to his neighbours to borrow wool cards. These were brushes used to prepare wool for weaving. However, it was immediately obvious, as he approached the Joyce household, that there was something awry. The wooden door, normally locked by a bar on the inside, had been smashed in and was lying off its hinges. What remained still lay on the ground. There had been no attempt to clean up the debris. There was no sign of the Joyce's either outside the house. Stepping over what had once been the door, John Collins entered the dark interior of the house, uncertain of what lay ahead. He can only have been apprehensive about what he might find, but John Collins's imagination did not have the skills to conjure up the carnage that lay before him. Inside the door he initially found the corpse of John Joyce lying naked on the floor of the kitchen. Collins immediately turned and left the house. Perhaps fearful he may have been blamed, he immediately decided he would gather the community of Mam Trasna before any further investigations took place. When the close-knit community assembled at the Joyce household, Collins and some others again entered to investigate further. John Joyce was undoubtedly dead, having been shot twice, but he was lucky when compared to the horrible fate suffered by the others in the house. The scene inside was truly disturbing. John Joyce's mother, his wife Breege and his teenage daughter Margaret were also lying dead, their bodies strewn around the room. The wounds that the women had suffered were horrific. The three women, who ranged in age from 14 to Joyce's 80-year-old mother, had been severely and viciously beaten around the head. The attackers had used a blunt instrument, a hammer or perhaps the handles of tools. So bad was the attack that the brains of the women were exposed. Breed Joyce had clumps of her own hair in her hands. Whether pulled out as she tried to defend herself or torn out in agony wasn't clear. Joyce's two sons who had been home that night were found in the smaller room in the bed. Michael, aged 17, and Pat, aged around 11 years of age, had both been shot with wounds in the abdomen and head. Somewhat miraculously, however, both boys were still alive and conscious when their neighbours investigated the house. John Collins asked them what had happened, and the older boy, Michael Joyce, said he had seen three men in the house, but their faces were dirty, and he couldn't identify them. 
Having some sense of the events, the men left the house and stepped out into the cool morning air. However, what happened next has confounded and shocked many in the 134 years since these events. Outside the Joyce house, the wider Mam Trashner community were undoubtedly stunned. Inside the building were four dead people, killed and beaten in the most vicious manner. Then there were two boys, in a terrible way, having both been shot twice. In order to decide what should be done, the community held a meeting. This must have been remarkably tense. Mam Trasna, as I've said, was an isolated, close-knit community, surrounded by other similar places. It's almost inconceivable that the murder was the action of an outsider. A stranger arriving in Mam Trasna would really quickly have been spotted. It was obvious that a person or persons from Mam Trasna or the immediate surrounding region had carried out this atrocity. Indeed, for those gathered outside the Joyce household that morning of August the 18th, they can only have been keenly aware that it was highly likely that the killer stood in their midst. Undoubtedly, all present were very careful about what they said, lest a similar fate should befall them. In what seems a cold and callous act, while this meeting dragged on for two hours, no one went to tend for the Joyce boys who had survived the attack. These children, still in the house, were conscious through all this. There were reasons for this seemingly cowardly, cruel and harsh behaviour, which I will go into in detail in a few minutes because this isn't the only display of heartlessness shown to these boys. Eventually the meeting drew to a close and it was decided to inform the police and 11 men from Mam Trasna walked to the temporary police hut at Finney, about 8 miles away. While they walked there and back, which must have been at least 3 hours, no one from the community appears to have gone into the house to care for the two boys, who they had known since the day they were born. Instead, these children were left dying, surrounded by the corpses of their father, stepmother, sister and grandmother. When the police eventually arrived, which must have been sometime around 11 o'clock in the morning, they found a horrific sight. When they entered the house, an even more disturbing vista lay in front of them than when John Collins had entered first in the morning. The boys were still alive, but only just. However, in the interim period, dogs had gotten into the house and gnawed away at the corpse of the 80-year-old mother of John Joyce, eating away the flesh up to the elbow. One of the policemen, who could speak Irish, again asked the boys what had happened. The two boys, nearing death now, offered up little information, saying they could not recognise the men as their faces were dirty. Remarkably, their neighbours who had gathered outside the house would not help to look after them in any way, shape or form. At three o'clock, Michael Joyce, the older of the two surviving boys who had been shot behind the ear, finally died. This now left his brother, Pat Joyce, and an 11-year-old boy as the sole survivor of the massacre, lingering on. When the local magistrate arrived on the scene, he thought the boy needed a woman's care but no matter how much money he would offer to local women to come and tend for the child, they all refused point blank. So it was he was left in the outhouse where his brother had died, cared only for by a policeman and effectively shunned by his own neighbours. This reaction from the local community seems cowardly, cold and perhaps even suspicious and needs to be explained. First and foremost, this reaction may have been motivated by fear. The people of Mam Trasna had just seen an entire family more or less wiped out in the most brutal circumstances by someone almost certainly standing amongst them. 
They also probably had some inkling as to who had done it and why it happened, given the close-knit nature of the community. In this situation, tending to the boys could potentially only lead to trouble for someone. It could be interpreted as a condemnation of the killers, something no one would want to have done. Furthermore, if the boys survived because of the help given and went on to testify against the killers, this could have equally terrible consequences for those who had helped them. Finally, the worst thing anyone could be labelled in Ireland in the 1880s was a police informer. Violence against informers was commonplace and justified by many, if not most, in society. If any member of the community tended to the boys, whether they lived or died, the police would naturally want to interview them to see if the child had said anything. This could easily lead to them being branded an informer and they could find themselves being attacked. Given all these reasons, it was easier just to do nothing and perhaps let the boys die. It would certainly allow their potentially dangerous secrets die with them. Against all the odds and in spite of his neighbour's callousness, young Pat Joyce did not die. He was instead saved purely by chance when a famous doctor from Dublin, Dr Robert MacDonnell, happened to be in a nearby town and by chance heard of the attack later in the day as news drifted out from Mam Trasna. While the community had not in any way moved to save the family, the traditional customs and rituals surrounding funerals were not neglected and they set about organising a wake that evening. A wake is a traditional Irish ritual still in practice where friends and family gather at the house of a dead person. In the 19th century, people drank, smoked, tobacco, told stories and women often keened or cried for the dead person. The following account, taken from the Daily Express on August 21st, 1882 and republished in Jarlath Waldron's book on Mam Trasna, relays an account of the wake held for the Joyce family at their home on Friday evening, less than 24 hours after the murder. During the evening, a considerable number of women living for miles around, with a number of men gathered on the mountain close to the Joyce's house and set up a low wailing keen for the dead. That word keen comes from the Irish quina, which means crying, and was common at funerals in the 19th century where women would cry out in an eerie low wail to mourn the dead person. The newspaper report went on. Dressed as the females were in short red petticoats and shawls and sitting close together on the grass of the upland, many of them smoking clay pipes, the sight presented a curious and novel one. Some of them wept loudly, others joined in moans of lamentations, and gazed steadily at the house or watched with keen and cunning eyes at the movements of the constabulary. Undoubtedly, the outsiders, the police and journalists present, found this somewhat hollow, given the way the community had treated the dying children. The evening of the wake also saw the arrival of Martin Joyce, the one member of the family not in the house during the attack. He was accompanied by a protective unit of police at all times. Given there was no clear motive, it was entirely possible the killers would try and finish the entire family off. At the wake, other policemen dressed in peasant clothing moved through the crowd, hoping to pick up some idea of what the local community thought may have been the motive. The likelihood of anyone in Mam Trasna volunteering information was almost nil, so they no doubt hoped they might hear a loose word ushered here or there by someone. While the police garnered little conclusive evidence from their investigation at the wake, they did have suspicions as to what might have been the motive. There were multiple possibilities. There was no doubt that the peace and tranquillity of Mam Trasna and the surrounding countryside was deceptive. Those paying attention knew that the region had been deeply unsettled for many years. 
These events could in fact be traced back to the Great Famine, if not before, and certainly provided potential motives. But before we look at this, I want to take a quick break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, let's get back to the show and look at some possible motives for the killings in Mam Trasna. Mam Trasna, like so many communities in the west of Ireland in the late 19th century, was deceptively peaceful. While the scenery was idyllic as the mountains rolled down to the lakeside, this masked growing tensions in the area. The tensions in Mam Trasna and indeed in many communities had deep roots stretching back to the Great Famine, if not before. Nowhere in Ireland had emerged, unscathed, from the disease, starvation and misery that ravaged Ireland between 1845 and 1852. Mam Trasna was no exception. The 1841 census, which was taken before the onset of the Great Famine, recorded 94 people living in the area. When another census was taken in 1851, as the famine was coming to an end, starvation, disease or emigration had seen the population fall by 12% to 78 people. Understandably, the Great Famine led to major changes in life. In the following decades, some areas were completely abandoned. The neighbouring area of Mam Gauna, near Mam Trasna, saw its population fall from 55 in 1841 to 6 in 1881. However, in Mam Trasna, the population began to grow after the famine, and by 1881, the census recorded 108 people living in the area, an even larger number than on the eve of the Great Famine. This growth was not without consequences and created tensions as the conditions that had led to the Great Famine had not been resolved. The practice of dividing a family's land between all sons meant that with each generation farms were getting smaller and the people poorer. This led to tensions between neighbours as thefts of sheep appear to have increased, something easily done in the dark of night. This had already resulted in disputes in the area and John Joyce, whose family had been killed in the murder, was known as a sheep stealer. This could not be ruled out as a motive. While these tensions brewed within the Mam Trasna community, it was also possible that events in the wider region could have had something to do with the brutal killings. Three years before the murders took place, a catastrophe had hit the entire west of Ireland when famine returned as the potato crop failed in 1879. 
As poor tenants fell behind in their rents, landlords increasingly threatened them with eviction. This was met with fierce resistance. The establishment of the Land League, essentially a tenants' union, organised resistance to these evictions. This struggle, known as the Land War, was largely peaceful across most of the country. However, in the west of Ireland, where tenants faced the most dire circumstances, tensions boiled over into violence. Between 1879 and 1882, there were about 50 to 70 murders, and the countryside around Mam Trasna was a hotspot for this violent activity. In 1880, a small landlord called Lord Mount Morris, who threatened to evict a tenant, was shot and fatally wounded at Clonbur, 10 miles from Mam Trasna. In January 1882, another murder took place at Clonbur, one that many people linked to the Mam Trasna murders. On that occasion, a man called Joseph Hoodie and his son were on their way to serve eviction notices for Lord Ardalon, a major landlord in the region. When the Hoodies reached Clonbur, a crowd confronted and attacked the two men. Joseph Hoodie was beaten and shot, and when his son ran from the scene, he too was shot and killed. The two bodies were put in a sack and dumped into the waters of Loch Mask, far from the shore, and it took several weeks to find the corpses. However, in an age where scientific analysis and forensics were in their infancy, this brought the police no closer to finding the killers. They needed an informer, a witness in the local community to come forward. This was unlikely. However, local rumours later did connect the murder of John Joyce to the case. His son, who had not been present on the night of the Mam Trasta murders, was working on a farm in Clonbur at the time, and John Joyce had supposedly been there on the day the Huddies were murdered, visiting him. Rumour held that since that day the police were seen at John Joyce's house and it was suspected he was turning informer. If this was true, Joyce was certainly playing a very dangerous game with people who had already shown themselves able and willing to kill. While the two theories that Joyce was stealing sheep from his neighbours or that Joyce had turned an informer do provide possible motives, neither is a tight fit. Firstly, the murder was unusually brutal. It is difficult to find a killing so brutal in Irish history since the famine. If his neighbours or those who had carried out the Huddy murders wanted him dead, it wouldn't be hard to find John Joyce alone and shoot him. Why go to his house and kill his entire family? Finally, in terms of a motive, I was discussing the podcast with my flatmate and he offered an interesting perspective, which is overlooked in narratives on the case. That is the gendered nature of the killings. The men and the women were clearly attacked differently. Three men were shot, but the three women were savagely beaten. Could this possibly allude to a motive? Were the Joyce women the target, rather than traditional theories which focus on John Joyce himself? It does certainly seem they were singled out for particularly vicious deaths. Back in 1882, as the police set about their work in Mam Trasna, they had to pick apart these potential motives to find the killer. On Saturday the 19th of August 1882, scarcely 24 hours after the murder, Mam Trasna had been transformed. Journalists continued to flood into the area. Advances in communication and telegram saw the story carried in the Manchester Guardian less than 48 hours after the event. These journalists were outnumbered, however, by the police arriving in the area. Also, a very important individual who arrived on the Saturday was a man called George Bolton, the Crown Solicitor, who was appointed the prosecutor in the case. Perhaps typical of 19th century justice, his tactics were somewhat heavy-handed, but he was regarded as an efficient prosecutor 
in that he had a high rate of convictions. Aside from the clear lack of motive, the challenges facing this man Bolton and the police in this case were monumental. Mam Trasna was a small isolated community. Many of the families were interrelated. Finding someone who would be willing to inform would not only mean that they risked their own death, but also they would have to potentially inform on their own family. Furthermore, the likes of George Bolton and his fellow investigators were in a world apart in Mam Trasna. The people there were very different in many respects. Their culture was different. They dressed differently. The men in off-white rough spun and the women in red petticoats. Many in Mam Trasna could not speak English and the police generally couldn't speak Irish and this meant translators were needed at all times which slowed down the investigation. The investigators were also undoubtedly inhibited and blinded by their own prejudices. The poverty and different culture in Mam Trasna led the police and prosecutors to look at the people in an almost animal-like fashion. One Dublin solicitor would refer to them as unfortunate creatures in their miserable destitution before going on to discuss the isolated situation of their almost inaccessible houses, their ignorance of our language, our social civilization, and our laws. This would have a huge bearing on the case and ensure the prosecutors would never truly understand the community and would struggle to unlock its secrets. Nevertheless, while the community was still reeling, the police began to make arrests and on the Saturday, less than 48 hours after the murder, a man called Big John Casey, who it was rumoured John Joyce had stolen sheep from, was picked up by the police. Could it be possible that Casey had targeted an entire family over a few sheep and if so, why would he pick out the women in particular and target them in such a brutal fashion? One way or another, the police shifted their intentions from Casey within hours and he was released. This was probably because of a most remarkable development which blew the case wide open. On Saturday evening, the community of Mam Trasna were preparing for the next stage in the rituals surrounding the deaths of the Joyce family. The authorities would hold a post-mortem, although this was scarcely needed, nor did it proffer much new information. Then the community would gather to bury the dead. However, at the same time as the inquest was being held, three men set out along the road, leaving Mam Trasna. Ahead of them was an eight-mile walk, leaving them plenty of time to think about what they were about to do. They were going to cross a point of no return. Mam Trasna and the surrounding regions had been rocked already by the murders. These men were about to add fuel to the flames. After eight miles, they arrived at the temporary police hut in Finney, where they informed the sergeant that not only had they witnessed the murders, but that they could identify ten individuals who had been involved. One can only imagine the reaction of the policemen. This was almost unprecedented in Ireland in the 19th century. Scarcely three days into the investigation, they had three witnesses who had come forward of their own volition and were willing to testify against their own neighbours. This was gold dust in terms of prosecuting the case. Wasting no time, a magistrate was summoned, and the three men testified under oath to the claims they made. The monumental nature of their allegations cannot be understated. It almost guaranteed that more people from Mam Trasnan would die. If anyone was convicted of carrying out the murders, they would surely hang. Further to this, the fact that these men were informing was highly likely to result in their own deaths. In light of this, the police did not allow the three men return home and for their own safety, they were removed to the town of Kong. 
That night, the police raided 10 houses in the Mam Trasna area and arrested the individuals named by the three informers. On the following evening, Sunday the 20th of August 1882, the funeral of the Joyce family took place in a shell-shocked Mam Trasna. The weather that evening was suitably miserable to reflect the shadow that now hung over the community. In the previous 24 hours, 10 men had been arrested, three more were in protective custody and the local community now carried the five murdered Joyce's to their graves. The Manchester Guardian carried a report of the funeral a few days later. The funeral took place, the bodies being interred in a little cemetery on the slope of the mountain which cuts Mam Trasna from the open region lying towards Ballinrobe. Mrs Joyce, the wife, was buried with the remains of her first husband, all the others being interred in the one grave. About a hundred of the mountain people attended the funeral, which was not, as is usually the case, where people have been murdered, boycotted. The world of Mam Trasna had been transformed forever, but this was only the beginning. In part two, we will look at the Mam Trasna trials and at the possible motives in more detail. Until then, Sloan. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 